You're listening to Ship History Radio through recording, preserving, and educating. The mission of the Steamship Historical Society of America is to share the history of engine-powered vessels, their crews, and their passengers with future generations. My name is Amy Bachari, and I'm the Education Director. Join me for a chat with Captain Richard Bowen and hear about his maritime career, including being the captain of the ship that found the wreck of the Titanic in 1985. To learn more about our organization, visit sshsa.org. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us today and tell us a little bit about your maritime career. If you could start maybe just stating your name, where you were born and what it was like growing up there. Uh, My name is Richard Bowen. I was born in November 1951 in Hyannis on Cape Cod and uh, grew up on the Cape all my life, went to school, uh, went to Massachusetts Maritime Academy, which is in Buzzards Bay, just about 25 miles away. They had just shifted to a four-year program. So uh, I, I I was fortunate to do that because that was the the first accredited uh, BS degree that they gave. I was fortunate that the year I came out of the academy, commercial shipping was quite good. It traditionally was a boom and bust business. So uh, I was able to turn down jobs, actually. And uh, growing up on the Cape uh, in those days, the 50s, 60s, early 70s, was uh, probably different than it is today. The Cape had a tourist economy, so winters were rather quiet, summers quite busy, quite lively. I got my start as a deckhand when I was 15 on the the old Nantucket Boat Incorporated. They ran a, uh, a converted World War II landing ship into a passenger vessel, one trip a day to Nantucket. I kind of just leaped right into it doing that, uh, which was a lot of fun mostly local kids and college kids, crew, uh, old timers, captain and mate and bosun. You know, for a kid, it was a lot of fun. Most kids on the Cape worked in restaurants or landscaping, mowing lawns, that sort of thing. So working on the boat was a, a lot more fun than that could be. And I, I enjoyed it. I liked it right off. I did that all through high school summer after summer after summer. And we had quite a few adventures on that boat. And then I went on to the Habitor boat where uh, there was just a captain and myself. So I did everything, engineer, mate, helmsman, deckhand, radio operator, you name it. Uh, We did one hour trips out to the Kennedy compound, which uh, in those days was quite quite a big attraction. Uh, we took about 100, 120 passengers, small boat, 65, 70-foot boat. So I got to learn everything, get the machinery started up in the morning, and uh, uh, we did six trips a day. I did the narration on the way out, steered on the way back. So I quickly learned harbor piloting, and uh, even we even went in the fog. We'd say, well, we're going to Hyannis Port. You're not going to see anything, but if you still want to go, we're good. So I uh, learned quite a bit as a, as a kid, you know. In those days, you could you could put in one year as a, a deckhand uh, or a mate 
unlicensed made and sit for a hundred ton license, what they call the, we used to call it the hundred pound license. And in those days, everybody around here had some sort of a license. It was just the nature of the maritime oriented neighborhood. Uh, so when I was uh, 19, I got my hundred ton ticket. Nobody ever asked about the year I worked when I was 15, which I suppose was illegal working around machinery under 16. But the Coast Guard never asked. And I got the, I took the exam, passed it. That next summer, uh, started working. I was 19. Now, I never let on that I was only 19. Everybody then assumed it must be 21 to run a boat. So I did a couple of days a week relief captain on a sightseeing boat. And then the next year, I was off from school, from the maritime school for the whole summer. So I ran that boat six, six days a week, six trips a day. I can't tell you how many thousand times I've been to Hyannisport. <laughs> and then in the, in the spring and the fall, I would do the island boats, usually as a, as a go back as deckhand or as sometimes a, a, a mate, relief mate on the weekends. But uh, and then, of course, just living on the Cape, you're exposed to this, that sort of thing. As I said, you had a choice in the summer to work in a restaurant or do landscaping. And I walked down by the docks one day and I said, you know, that might be fun to do. It's my mother says, you know, you can get a job at the restaurant just down the end of the street. I, said, I don't I don't want to do that. <laughs> so uh, it all worked out nicely. So what were some of the downsides to working on a boat? There's difficulties going to sea. My wife was very independent. She had her own professional career and uh, was able to take care of everything by herself. I just came home on vacation. That <laughs> kept things simple. That would be very difficult for, for some wives, uh, especially if there's children. She's on her own. You know, the blizzard comes, the power goes out, the car doesn't start, nobody comes to plow the driveway. You know, you can see how that sort of snowballs, literally. <laughs> so it takes a special uh, partner for that. Somebody that works at the Ship History Center did some interviews on commercial fishing. Mm -hmm. And and that was sort of one thing that she talked about a lot was how it impacts families and how women, you know, what their work is like on shore and how they support the men going out fishing. And so I always found that to be interesting because I think that's something that's very specific to the maritime community. I mean, I'm not sure there's that many other jobs where the men are kind of off a lot and it forces the women to be a bit more independent and, you know, in ways maybe they weren't even, you know, historically, like on Nantucket, the women were running businesses and traveling to Boston and conducting business yeah. Yeah. way before it was socially acceptable for women to be doing that sort of thing. And, 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 you know, if you recall the whaling ships, they were gone two or three years at a time. Uh, <laughs> we would, I would only think of a couple of two, three, four months gone. Yeah. One of the differences with that career was you would work um, maybe, well, depending on the company, depending on the ship, the voyage. So maybe three or four months gone and then three or four months home. And uh, in the latter years, I was roughly four months on, four months off. Now, it was called vacation. 
But when you came home, you simply did what everyone else did day in and day out, you know, mow the lawn and paint the windows and what have you. So uh, for someone that, say, works Monday to Friday, nine to five, that might be a sort of a jarring lifestyle to get into. Can you talk a little bit about what the training was like? I know you said you went to Mass Maritime, so you had formal training. But was there a sort of informal on-the-job training also, or did you have oh, yes. to sort of go yeah. to a maritime? Well, there's two parts of that. There's an academy-trained graduate who graduates with a third mate license. I started right out as third. I went with a big company, American Export Lines. They had about 24 ships, and it was summer, so the regulars want summer vacations. And so every year they would hire a crop of recent graduates from the maritime schools. So I went right to work as a third mate. I was thrown right into it. I had a pretty good idea what I was doing because I had spent one summer as a cadet on a container ship and learned learned an awful lot, everything. And I, I was under the second mate, four to eight. So I, he stuck me out in the bridge while he did chat work. So I, I learned quick, thrown right into it. So I was comfortable my first ship. You were expected to learn, to ask. Captain didn't trust a young mate that didn't ask questions. And the old guys, these, like I say, these were a lot of 1930s, 1940s guys. Many had come up from seamen, hadn't gone to school. They knew all the old, I guess you'd say, arcane and obsolete things. And you learned, you could learn a lot from them if you asked. They also had seamen, pipers, they called them, who would start young guy as an ordinary seaman and uh, maybe become an able seaman and then put in their time. There used to be commercial schools, little schools like in New York and Baltimore, Philadelphia, that had courses you could pay to take and sit for your thirds. You also could take courses ashore. It was the Siemens Church Institute in New York, Manhattan, lower Manhattan, had various courses. If you upgraded or you renewed your license, you had to take a radar course, which was a couple of days. There were specialized courses for cargo. You had firefighting courses, company-specific courses that the the tanker company sent their guys to a lot of schools. As things advanced, uh, we got the, the first simulators came into use. That was quite a novelty at first. I, I attended a number of uh, ship handling simulators, uh, radar simulators. Oh, nowadays there are simulators for everything, even ship-specific simulators. So, so the training was something that uh, if you expected to advance, uh, you know, you learned on the job. You, you took, if there were courses available, hopefully somebody else paid for it or the unions paid for it. If you were going to work your way up, you had to continuously learn. And so what was it like for you sort of moving up to the role of captain? What was that process like? Well, in parts because I worked at it, in parts accidentally. (laughs) I stayed with export until they folded up at the, I think, the middle of 78, maybe, 1978. 
Well, I just had my chief mate ticket, brand new chief mate, Oceans Unlimited. And I had a master thousand ton freight and towing. Then in the spring of 78, found myself unemployed. Uh, so at that time, the offshore drilling was a big thing. And they were just starting off New Jersey test drilling. I believe that they were looking for gas. Uh, so I, um, word of mouth, got a job with a company in Houston on a supply boat, the, the second of two mates. We brought the boat up to Rhode Island, sat and sat and sat and never went anywhere, never did anything. They were waiting for the oil rigs to come up the coast. And the captain, who, shall we say, went ashore and drank considerably, the next day we were supposed to go to sea. And um, he disappeared off the face of the earth. We never did find out what happened to him. The shore-based manager, he said, well, you got the license, you take it. Oh, okay. So I fell into that job. I didn't stay there too long. So I picked up a job at Woods Hole as a relief chief mate, and it was just over the tonnage that it was good towards master. And then uh, that ended, and I went to work for Gulf Oil as a third mate with a chief mate's license and got thrown right in a tanker business. Had to learn within minutes. And they stick me on there, a guy with absolutely no tanker experience. But again, you got thrown into it, you had to learn. And came ashore and eventually went to work at Woods Hall again as a relief chief mate. So I went on the NOR as chief mate, Emerson Hiller, Mass Maritime, 1940, was captain. I always consider him sort of a, a mentor, one of my best mentors. We got along quite well. He could be a hard guy on chief mates, but I stayed three years. And so about a year later, I got my master's ticket, and then I became his relief. And then he retired, and uh, I was standing there and standing upright the longest, so I became Captain Air. I was wondering if we can talk a little bit about the Titanic and sort of how you got involved in that project. Yeah, like I say, I went, I went captain on a permanent regular captain on the NOR in 83. I think in 84, we did a trip with Bob Ballard and his crew on the, uh, the wreck of the Thresher. Uh, and that was sort of a, sort of a test uh, run. Early 85, I got wind of the Titanic expedition coming up. And of course, I was the regular captain on the ship. So all I had to do was just stay there, sit there. That summer, we went out to the uh, Azores. I think it was about four days were budgeted uh, to him for the Titanic. And so my involvement is the, the Titanic, again, was just happened to be in the job. Had I not got wind of the thing early in 85, I might have taken vacation and one of the other guys relieved me. So were you interested in the ship previously or was this just kind of like, oh, it was just part of the job and then it came up? Oh, or... no, no, no. I, I had always been interested in it. I, I don't know if I mentioned my grandmother grew up in Liverpool. The Titanic was registered out of Liverpool. A lot of the crew were from Liverpool. She had a, a cousin, a steward died in the, in, when, when the ship went down. And years later, I started reading 
uh, up on it. It seemed quite interesting. And there was a, actually there's a, a three sister ships. And, and I knew something about those passenger ships in those days, because as I mentioned, my grandfather had been a radio operator and his last few ships were the passenger ships, North Atlantic, Europe to New York, mostly. And so I had an interest in that, how, for instance, the design of the ships changed over the years, how they went from coal to oil. Some ships were load as many immigrants as possible at a cheap fare. Other ships were luxury ships with a small number, smaller number of passengers at a higher fare. The business end of it, uh, I was interested in. And then I kind of got away from that. And it wasn't until I was at Huey and got wind of the, uh, the new equipment that uh, Bob Ballard's group was developing where they could put the, the video cam 3,500, uh, hundred meters down, 13,000 feet. And then I heard the rumor of the Titanic trip and sort of resurrected my interest in it. But I'd always been interested in it. That's, that's quite a story. So how much of the process then did you see of them actually finding the wreck of the Titanic? Uh, well, well I, had, I had met with him a few times on the ship about how we were going to for instance, loading the equipment, placing the equipment. Uh, they had two 20-foot shipping containers that bolted together as a uh, control van. Another shipping container, 20-foot container, had a, uh, for lack of a better word, a, it had a photo mat in it. There was another camera system that used 35-millimeter SLR cameras with uh, several hundred feet of film for each camera. So they had a, a a whole photo developing lab in another container. And uh, winches, uh, all the various equipment had to be placed on deck so that everything was lined up properly. For instance, launching the cameras was a, uh, the sleds, maybe eight or 10 feet long by maybe four or five feet, sort of a, a box structure, heavy, full of a delicate equipment, quite a bit of doing to launch these things, especially if there's any sort of uh, weather or the ship's rolling. When we arrived in Azores, his group came out, joined the ship. Now, he had, they had been on a French vessel the month before for the French Institute, the um, Lesserois. Yeah. From what I gather, they, were, they found nothing, but they were able to eliminate about eight-tenths of the search area, the probable search area. So when we went out, we were able to go to that last corner and just, as they say, mow the lawn, towing the camera back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I think it was something like a 10 or 11, maybe 12 foot box. But getting back, when we left the Azores first, we went to the uh, wreck of the Scorpion nuclear sub. And the wreck had been found back then and, and photographed, but we were able to get the camera down, the video and do a thorough uh, mapping of the wreckage, the debris field. And when that was done, steamed towards the uh, Titanic area. First thing was to put in a transponder net, which were, uh, as I recall, three acoustic transponders on the seabed in a triangle. And then from the stern of the ship hung a, uh, a hydrophone that, that collected the the pings from those transponders, fed it into a computer that then put it onto a video 
plot in the control van you had the uh, the navigation plot was on a uh, you know now that i think of it these were actual the old videos the, the giant tvs not the flat screens we had now these monstrous i think they might have been sony's these huge probably 100 pound television i think the ship was the blue dot and the wreck was the red dot and the camera hanging underneath us was the white dot so the thing was to play the wind and the current and sort of a controlled drift to try and maintain position over the wreck. The first few days were going back and forth, towing the camera. Didn't really see anything. Mud, more mud, maybe a rock or two, some little fish, nothing. Hour after hour after hour. We had another TV set up in the ship's library, so a bunch of us would sit up watching that. At that point, I had little to do with the day-in, day-out stuff. And then... On September 1st, I think it was about 1.30 in the morning, the ship's cook, uh, Johnny Bartolomeu, pounding on the door. They got it. They got it. And now Ballard had the cabin next to me, the chief scientist cabin, and he was sleeping too. So everybody's up and at it, piled into the van. They had been towing the camera along, the video cam, black and white video, and very grainy Sort of looks like, remember the first landing on the moon, very grainy, almost blurry sort of stuff, black and white. And they came over one of the ship's boilers. When the ship went down, it broke it too. And a lot of the machinery fell out and went to the seabed. The ship's, the hull still had some buoyancy, so sank at a much slower rate. And so one of the boilers was uh, upright on the seabed, and these Three sister ships had the same propulsion system, coal-fired boilers, and port and starboard reciprocating engines, piston engines. The exhaust from those engines fed a centerline turbine, low-pressure steam turbine engine. In those days, three propeller, three screw ships were rather common, especially with steam plants. And so the, the boilers were all made by the same company to the same design. They had three doors, the coaling ports. You've probably seen in old films or old movies, the old Titanic movies, where they open the door, shovel the coal in, slam the door shut. Okay, well, these three doors were distinctive to those three ships. So we had a pretty good idea where they're on the thing. On the outboard sides of the camera sled, there were a magnetometer, and that started picking up a large metal object. Next thing you know, they were on the hull. About that time, we started having winch problems. And so we decided to pull everything up for the night, sort of gather our wits and go at it the next morning. So we had to sort of change our routine around. They had everything, all the information you could imagine. They had a model, they had drawings, they had uh, deck plans, photographs of the ship taken when it was new and he would plan what area we're going to try to get to again sometimes it was just a controlled drift what what you see is what you get so we went to a system where um, one of us in the van was at a console maneuvering the ship we had run a control box into the van and so on the bridge they could flip a couple of switches and transfer control of the ship's thrusters into the van. 
and he just had two joysticks, one for the bow cycloid, one for the after cycloid. Now, the way that ship was built was there was a main engine in the middle, in the engine room, and a shaft that went forward and a shaft that went aft, and at each end was a what's called a cycloid. And a cycloid is a vertical bladed propeller, kind of like a um, egg beater, and has whatever direction you put to thrust towards, the blades are angled so that as each blade passes that point, it sort of takes a bite of water. So you could maneuver this thing ahead, astern, sideways, uh, left, right, up, not even, well, not quite up and down. Uh, sort of like you've seen a twin rotor helicopter, sort of it would remind you of something like that. You could go anywhere, sideways. So one of us would drive the ship, Next to him would be the uh, guy running the navigation plot, which took sort of a fair amount of fiddling with, depending on acoustics, uh, sea, con uh, sea conditions, noise. The propellers themselves made quite a bit of noise put into the water. Over on the other side of the van, a guy had another video that looked at what the camera was seeing, and he ran the winch control. If we saw something dead ahead that we're about ready to ram, he starts pulling the winch up, all up, all up, all up. So myself and the chief mate, Dave Castles, and uh, one of the Frenchmen, uh, Bernard Pilot, I think his name was, we, the three of us, took uh, shifts maneuvering the vessel. And then all the other stations, they took turns or took shifts. And we pretty much went round the clock. There were some glitches. You know, after about six hours, you'd say, I hope something breaks so I could take a nap. <laughs> um, the weather was changing. Uh, in, for a couple of days, we had some nasty weather. Uh, that's when I think we sort of adopted the, the drifting mode to just take a controlled drift and get pictures of whatever we can. And of course, they had a schedule to follow too, because this was funded by the Navy, so we couldn't stay there forever. We had another satellite radio system that used an old Navy satellite that the American flag research ships used, generally a, a Sunday morning conversation, and you could even patch a call home through the thing. So we got on that and had the guy that ran the net, in, he was in Florida, patch us through to Woods Hole. And, of course, we get the Sunday morning switchboard operator, sort of have to explain to her to please get a hold of the director. <laughs> We've, we got the thing. And then notified them, and, oh, that's when, this, that's when it just started. It was just the mayhem was starting. Within a couple of days, developed a uh, conflict over who got the credit for what, the Navy owned the ship. The Navy put up the money. The Navy paid the money to build the equipment through grants to Ballard. Woods Hole operated the ship. The expedition was under the auspices of the Woods Hole. And the Frenchmen, who had been billed as equals, maybe not so much anymore. A lot of conflict over that. And then the radio traffic started. At that time, we were on open voice, single sideband. Anybody with a shortwave receiver could have listened in on it. And thousands did, I suppose. So some of these arguments were in the clear on the radio. And then we had people with the Inmarsat, that particular set that we had at that time, 
if a call was coming through, it's sort of like an old phone. You don't know who's calling. It could be the Navy. It could be Woods Hole. It could be, you know, Channel 5 in Boston wanting to get a scoop. And then we had to get going, head back to Huey. I think it was another four days, maybe, steaming back to Woods Hole. And we got into Woods Hole and stopped outside of Woods Hole, and a delegation came aboard. They went into closed door, some closed to, to I guess, hash this out, because a, a news conference was planned for that morning. A couple of Navy brass showed up. Within a day or two, a hurricane was coming. So I had to take the ship up to Boston to ride out the hurricane. And then I had to get back down here and then went to uh, Washington to the National Geographic for a news conference there. Nobody knew who I was and nobody asked. I got a necktie. I got a hooey necktie out of it. <laughs> and uh, got back to hooey and back to work because we were leaving in a few days on the next trip. And uh, as far as the Titanic stuff, I really never heard much about any other trips anymore. I got conscripted by Huey to give some speeches locally, which was fun for a while. Got a lot of free dinners out of that. <laughs> Can you just talk about what, what did it feel like when you found it? Were you really excited or, or what was that like? Oh, I, yeah, I thought it was quite exciting. You know, a lot of oceanography is very boring, I thought. Well, I'm not a, I don't have a scientific background, so dredging rocks off the bottom of the ocean and buckets of water from 3,000 meters doesn't turn me on much. We used to do some very interesting trips. We would, that particular ship was a good, what they called a buoy ship, to put out big oceanographic uh, instrumentation, moorings, weather buoys, that sort of stuff. That involves a lot of ship handling, which was fun to do. But like I say, a lot of it is quite routine. Uh, so I was quite interested in the Titanic. I knew a fair amount about it. I knew about the, the construction, the layout, so forth. Uh, when when we would drag the camera over the deck, I could spot things like capstans, winches, booms, that sort of thing. And uh, the first night when it discovered the wreck, they had some flag hoisting memorial at the stern. Well, I, I have other things I have to do because it's going to be a long night now. I wasn't that emotionally involved, I wouldn't say. Immediately, it started up with, well, it's the grave site. I, I really didn't have the uh, time for that. Uh, so see, I was, I was in, a, in an odd position as captain of the ship on between Huey and, the, and, and Ballard Scientific Group, which is a complete different crew from ship's crew. And now you throw the Navy in that, and now you throw the French into that. And, and so I found myself in a rather odd, I wouldn't brag and say peacemaker, but, but trying to keep things, you know, uh, running smoothly. Uh, the French were very upset. Because while we were at sea, they were already being sort of pushed aside by the shore side entities back in the States. They were quite upset. I think they got a raw deal on it. Now, uh, when Ballard's book came out, Discovery of the Titanic, he, he gave them full credit that was due for them, which, which I thought was, was quite honorable to do. 
I suppose, like many things, it comes down to who's putting up the money. And it was Navy money, and they said, it's, we're taking credit for it. What comes to mind when you look back on your career? I enjoyed going to sea. And, and I think because I enjoyed it, I ended up doing reasonably well. I didn't have the jobs or made the money that a lot of my classmates did. The tanker guys, that, well, those were the big money jobs. But I always had fun. Jeez, captain of a ship that finds the Titanic, that's a good gig. <laughs> my wife says, how long do you think before Johnny Carson calls you? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, SSHSA called you, so that's almost as good as Johnny Carson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for sharing all this information with us. Okay, thank you, Amy. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Ship History Radio. We hope you enjoyed hearing about Captain Bowen's experience at sea and the role he played in finding the Titanic. This episode was produced by the Steamship Historical Society of America. Learn more about our organization at sshsa.org.